Hello, risk takers. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy. And today I'm continuing my discussion with Larry Swedro, who is head of finance and economic research at Buckingham Wealth Partners. You can learn more about his story in episode 645. Larry deeply understands the world of academic research about investing and especially risk. Today, we're going to discuss two chapters from his books, the book called Investment Mistakes Even Smart Investors Make and How to Avoid Them. You know, go to Amazon right now and get that book because there's just so much value. But we're going to be talking about mistake 26. Do you fail to compare your funds to proper benchmarks? And 27, do you focus on pre-tax returns? Larry, take it away. Uh, well, the first one is we're going to talk about how mutual funds, in effect, lie, I'll use that word, <laughs> about their performance, or at least bend the facts to suit their needs. The SEC does require mutual funds to define their category. So let's say they define their category as small stocks, but it doesn't tell them what is the proper benchmark. So the mutual fund can choose a benchmark that is easier to beat than a more appropriate benchmark, and then they look good. So the classic example of this that I like to cite is all small cap funds almost always benchmark themselves against the Russell 2000, a small cap index. Okay, so first thing we need to know is the Russell 2000 really isn't small cap stocks. It's become a little bit more so today, but it's the way it's defined is the Russell 1000 is the largest 1000 of the largest 3000. And then the Russell 2000 is the next smallest 2000 stocks out mm. of the three. Now, at one point we had like 8,000 stocks and you're only capturing the top 3,000. If you wanted really small cap stocks, you couldn't own the Russell you know, 2000 or you would miss them. And that's really where the biggest premium is, okay? Historically, it's in the ninth and 10th decile of stocks. So one way they could easily benchmark is to own smaller stocks, micro caps, and then because you're in the ninth and 10th decile of smaller stocks, you would over time on average outperform. But it was much worse than that because the Russell 2000, you know, was a really horrific index. It was dumbly designed, <laughs> so poorly so that Vanguard, for a long time, it used that as it's not just its benchmark, but that was the index it was replicating. Now, they saw how bad it was. It was costing them and their investors one and a half, two percent a year because of the way the construction rules were set, that everyone knew in advance which stocks would be added and subtracted. So the active managers, hedge funds, would front run whenever they knew Vanguard and all the Russell 2000 indexes would have to buy a stock because it was entering the Russell 2000, and that would drive the price up, and they would buy it, say, two weeks or a month before, and Vanguard would come in and push the prices even higher. And when a stock was leaving, 
they would front run and short it, and then Vanguard would come in and have to sell as well as others. And so the Russell 2000 dramatically underperformed a very similar index like the S&P 600 or a more proper index might be the CRISP in small cap index or mm. an MSCI 1750 index, which has better construction rules. So Gus Souter eventually convinced Vanguard to drop that and it really then switched, I think, to the CRISP index and then to the MSCI 1750 or vice versa. That's another example, but we're not done yet. Mm. So another way to deal with this is we know that active managers tend to, the word we use is style drift. So they use the name growth stocks, but that doesn't mean 100% of their portfolio is going to be growth stocks. Doesn't even mean that 100% of the portfolio, let's say they're in the large growth category, say by Morningstar, or it's called the Large Growth Fidelity Fund or whatever brand name. They probably own or can own small stocks. They can own value stocks. So what happens is something that became known in the financial community is Dunn's Law is at work. So Steve Dunn was a lawyer who happened to be on websites, you know, on finance and investing 25 years ago. I met him there. He, he pointed the following out. When an asset class does well, index funds are going to generally outperform almost everybody because they're pure. So they only own, let's say, value stocks far outperform as they did, say, in 2022. Then if any active fund owns some growthy stocks, well, they're going to get killed relative to the benchmark. Or let's say small value outperform large value, which on average is done by call it two or percent or more a year. Well, you know, if you're a small value fund, an active fund might own some mid cap value, some large value, they style drift. So you're going to underperform. But when the reverse is true, Let's say you're a small cap manager this year and you own some Tesla or Microsoft or NVIDIA. Well, now you've style drifted. You didn't want those stocks, but they own them. And so now they'll outperform or have an advantage over an index because the index doesn't own any of those outperformers. So when an index that asset class does well, the index funds tend to outperform by wider margins and higher percentages than they do on average. And when the, let's say this a year, small value is doing poorly relative to say large growth, well, you know, the index of small value relative to active managers is likely to do poorly because they own 100% of the worst performing asset class where somebody, an active manager in small value may own 20% or mm. something like that of the other asset class. If you look at the data over the long term, in every asset class, active managers, even pre-tax, basically underperform something 90 to 95% of the time. And the longer the time period, the worse the odds. But if you look at short periods, you want to look at what the asset class did 
and then see the relative performance. And you have to be very careful about doing. So the right way for investors to easily check this, to see if an active manager is truly outperforming an appropriate risk-adjusted benchmark, okay, is to run a, a regression analysis against an asset pricing model. And we talked about this, I believe, before oh, yeah. at portfolioanalyzer.com. Yeah, and you could just type in the fund symbol <clears throat> and use, I use the AQR factors in a four-factor model, including quality, and then look at the data. And then it'll tell you whether it generated alpha, meaning outperformance or underperformance relative to the appropriate benchmark. And that's how you can tell how a fund has done over whatever time period. But we know there's actually good literature on this, good studies. Funds choose easier to beat benchmarks, ones that they can outperform either because it's a poorly designed benchmark or they're going to tilt more to the factors. If you're a small value, they'll have lower market caps and lower prices to book value, for example. Mm. And you wrap up this particular section by saying to avoid making this type of mistake, make sure that you compare the performance of an actively managed fund against its appropriate passive benchmark, which I think what you're advising is, you know, well, you'd hope that the fund is choosing the right benchmark, but you know they may or may not. But at least you we should be able to. Yes, Most we know they do don't. Yeah, most do not. So I think the best way to do it is either go to a portfolio visualizer, run the alphas, and see whether it was positive or negative. The other way to do it is to compare their performance in an asset class to systematic manager like dimensional fund advisors or Avantis. But the thing is, like I mentioned, they're going to be pure. And if your active manager isn't and the asset class is done poorly, their style drifting a little bit, maybe it's luck or skill, we don't know, but mm. they'll outperform because of that style drift. But over the long term, you would not expect that to be the case. And when you do the factor model in the portfolio visualizer, it's going to show that the outperformance of that particular fund is driven by, let's say, a large cap position versus small cap. That's okay. in effect. What you do is it shows you what are called the loadings. So how much exposure do you have to that factor relative to the market? So, for example, you want small cap exposure. You want to have a small cap beta of, say, one. Okay, you have full exposure to that factor. But you might look at a small cap fund like Vanguard Small Cap Index, and I don't know the numbers, but it might have a loading on that of 0.6. Mm. So you're only getting 60% of the exposure to that factor. Right. And there's a couple of things that I thought about when I was reading this chapter. The first one is the idea that one of the questions I have is that a typical fund manager, let's say, that runs a concentrated portfolio, an active fund manager, and let's say that mm -hmm. he's got 10 active share, you know, let's say 50% of his portfolio is in 10 stocks, and then he's got another 30 or something like that, whatever that number is. One of my questions I've always had in my mind is, let's say that that person on average has a portfolio of 40 stocks. Mm-hmm. 
when you benchmark them against a passive index that owns all stocks, mm -hmm. and then you calculate the standard deviation of the two portfolios, obviously his portfolio that's always going to have just 40 stocks versus the passive index that's going to have, you know, a thousand stocks is always going to be on a risk adjusted return. You know, a clear winner will be the passive fund only because the passive fund has full diversification versus the active fund managers got, you know, 40. He he's trying to outperform by focusing on 40 stocks. So I'm just curious, right. how do how do you look at the number of stocks that are in a portfolio? and the number of stocks that are in the benchmark that you're comparing to, does it matter? Well, what you would expect is the fewer the stocks, the higher the volatility, right? And we know that stock selection makes up a very minor portion of the returns over the long term. Mm. It's these exposure to factors that determine 95% plus of the exposure. So you're getting uncompensated risk. So you better get alpha, right? Because you could diversify away those risks just by owning the entire asset class, which is what, what? the funds like dimensional. So you, you should expect to see higher standard deviations. Now, maybe they do a great job and they choose low beta stocks within that asset class. So they tend to be less cyclical, for example. Mm -hmm. So you could get, you know, that, kind of situation. So that might offset it, right? Mm. That would give you exposure to say the quality factor. And that could lead you to misunderstanding the performance. So that's one thing. The second thing you can look at is something called the R squared or the correlation coefficient. Mm. That'll tell you how good a job the model is doing of predicting or explaining the returns. Now, the fewer the number of stocks, the lower that's likely to be. Larger number of stocks, you look like the market, you're gonna get correlations in the high 90s, mm. right? Looks like you're looking to, to tell us about the beta of the small cap or something like that. What do you? So yeah, I'm looking up just, uh, I know the Vanguard small value symbol. So I was just gonna look at the beta of that symbol. So the Vanguard fund has a loading on the size factor. This is a small value fund. Mm. It has a loading on the size factor of just under 50%. Now, if you want to own a similar fund, let's say you wanted more pure exposure like I do, so you might own the Bridgeway small value fund. All right, so now we could look at that and we find that its exposure is one. And by the way, it's loading on the value factor. So the value factor, it's going to be 0.71. And the Vanguard fund, let's see what that is. So this is a good example we can use, is only 0.52. So you're losing significant exposures there. So if you get a year like 2013 or 2016, when small value dramatically outperformed, Bridgeway is going to have much better performance than the Vanguard fund. Mm, okay. When you get a year like this year, I'm willing to bet that the Vanguard fund is going to outperform and then we'll say, well, it's a better fund. No, it's just a matter of what the factors did during that period. 
it's like the uh, race I just ran at the park the other day. It was just me against a 87 year old man. And yeah. I just, I won. I mean, I, I have to say it's just, you know, my, my skill and competence and all of the more hard work I've put into my running abilities, or maybe my benchmark was just a little off. I have another question about this, that given your history with the market, I thought would be the perfect person to answer this question. And that question is, I went to see the Wilshire 5,000 to only find that there's 3,500 companies in it. That's to a great degree a function of Sarbanes-Oxley making it so expensive to be a public company. When I was on the board of a private REIT that was going public, it was going to go public with less than 100 million valuation. Mm. Today, almost nobody goes public unless you're like the company that my firm is owned by waited till they were over a billion dollar valuation because the costs of being public have become so high, all the audit fees and the complications, everything. So what's happened is those companies are staying private. And that means a lot of the smaller stocks, which have higher long term returns, you know, you don't get to buy Tesla let's say, when it's a startup mm. till it gets to be this huge company. And usually the greatest returns are when they're smaller, right? So that's another problem for investors who would like to seek those uh, higher returns. Let me just, I think this is worthwhile mm. to walk down this, this path. Yep. Bridgeway, if you look at their fund, or we just went through it, it's much yep. smaller. Small a more cap value, value fund. That, yeah, Bridgeway Small Value Fund, the symbol is BOSVX. Now there's an ETF, it's BSVO. But it's much smaller than Vanguard's fund. If you went to Morningstar.com and looked at the portfolio statistics, you would see, for example, that the Bridgeway Fund has a PE, for example, of under eight, and it's got an average market cap of under $900 million. So it's mm. really small and very valuing. If we look at Vanguard's small value fund, on the other hand, we could do the same thing. So the Bridgeway fund had a PE, we said of, I think it was under nine, right? The Vanguard fund is over 10. That's a pretty significant difference. And the market cap, or maybe it was even under eight, the market cap is almost $5 billion <laughs> versus under $900 million. So now let's see what happens. So you get 2013. That was a year small cap value did really well. Yep. What should you expect to see? Which fund is going to outperform? Well, the one that has the most exposure to small cap value. Right. That's Bridgeway. It was yep. up 44% and it outperformed the Vanguard fund by almost 8%. 8% in the same asset. There's no skill there. This mm. is pure systematic investing on both parties. It just shows its exposure to these factors are what is determining the term. If we look at 2016, the next year, small value dramatically outperformed. It was 34 and 25. So in 2022, small value lost nine for Vanguard, 
only lost four for Bridgeway. But this year, Vanguard's fund is ahead because small value is the lowest performer. There's so many, you know, this raises all the challenges for the typical investor. And of course, you know, you know, you have the sophistication to be able to identify this. Where should the average person begin? I mean, first of all, they have a broad-based diversified, you know, index fund, let's say total market fund, but they wanted to start to do a little bit of tilts, but they don't have the capacity to look at every single different fund that's out there. Where would you recommend that they start? It's pretty simple. What you want to look for is one, funds that are systematic. And their strategies are not only systematic, they're transparent. So you know exactly what they're doing. They publish the strategy and it's replicable, right? So you know that if the manager gets fired, it doesn't matter. Mm. It's like a machine running it with a little bit of, you know, trading that goes on to try Mm. to keep transactions costs. A lot of it will be algorithmic programming today to save money on trading costs. And obviously everybody's algo program will be slightly different so you won't get an exact replication. But these are low turnover funds anyway. What you really wanna do is to look for the funds that have the deepest exposure. So I would use Portfolio Visualizer there and there are only a handful of funds families that are really the leaders in this systematic there are more but you know i use dimensional and Advantis as the two big players bridgeway has a niche in small value there are other funds like blackrock and others but you know you can use vanguard but you're not going to get big exposure because vanguard's market is the average retail investor and their fund might have, you know, 30 billion. You can't run 30 billion in a really small microcap fund because you would, when you trade, you would drive prices somewhere. Mm. So they don't even want to look They're mass very market. small. So that's one way. A simple way for those who aren't familiar with these terms is just use Morningstar and go to the tab that says portfolio and look at the kind of metrics we looked at. My favorite ones are market cap, and you want the smallest, all else equal. And then what you want is to look at value metrics, and you can look at things like price to cash flow, which not only shows value, but quality as well. So Mm -hmm. that's simple ways to do it. Or you could just take the model portfolio recommendations in my book. That's enough. There you go. There you go, because uh, not every factor is, there's only a small number of factors that so are let, worth even spending your time point, on. Yeah, yeah. let's go over. This is really important because a lot of people think small value funds, they're all like, they're all indexed. I'm just going to mm. buy the cheapest one. So Vanguard's fund is, say, eight basis points. And the Avantis fund, for example, I think is in the, in the 20s. Uh, so it's more expensive. Mm. But if you, let's say, more loading on the size and value factors, and it's even more, as we said. Well, if you think there's a 3% premium on value and a 2% or whatever on size, well, 20% of 2% is 40 basis points and 20% of 3% is 60. So I'd be happy to pay another 15 or so basis or 20 
to get a higher expected return of maybe 60 to 80 basis points. Now, if it was close and mm. I was only getting an extra 10 or 15, I'd take maybe the guaranteed savings. But when you have much bigger numbers like that, and by the way, you get a much better diversification mm. because these things don't look like the market. So in years like 2013 and 16 and 22, when the market is doing poorly, your fund might be doing a lot better. Mm. Might be. It's not a guarantee. Yep. Yeah, it's interesting because when you think about fees, the highest feed funds are pretty much guaranteed to be losers over the long run. But Usually the lowest of the low, once you get down to the lowest of the low, there's trade-offs related to what's the exposure that they're giving you. And if you're going to get a pure exposure to let's just say small value, you may have to pay a little bit more than a mass market fund like a Vanguard because they're just impossible at the amount of money that they're managing to have pure exposure to it. And there's a cost there. And the flip side is you're going to have to pay more because the other fund doesn't have the economies of scale that Vanguard has. So they have to charge more because there are fixed costs, including SEC fees and registration, all this kind of stuff accounting, audits, doesn't matter the size of the fund. So when you run a $30 billion fund, those fees are much smaller for the value on the assets so Vanguard can charge less. Mm. And I just want to wrap up on this by saying the kind of the tidbit also that comes out of this is that 100% of the growth in listed companies in stock markets is coming from outside of the US. The US is shrinking. The capitalist model of a free market to trade in stocks is disappearing in the U.S. Partly because of Sarbanes-Oxley, but also I would say this, the amount of money available to private equity through private credit, which provides these LBO funds and stuff, has dramatically increased. And that means there's a lot of these companies are either staying private longer through the ability to borrow from private credit, or they are being bought up and taken private where they can save significant dollars. They don't have the expenses of being a public company anymore, and they don't have to worry about short-term earnings and all that stuff and can focus on longer-term growth. So you're seeing some of that, but there's no doubt that we don't see really micro cap stocks going public anymore. It's mm -hmm. just too expensive. This is the failure of government to understand the consequences of their decisions, that they don't see this unintended consequences. Well, it's no problem because there's been a, a free lunch. The free lunch is the Fed printed all kinds of money and produced extremely low interest rates that no other country could do because U.S. has a reserve currency. They wow. could keep interest rates down at one or, you know, one, one percent. The private equity get a pool of capital at very low rates. So thanks to taxpayers and citizens whose currency is ultimately probably devaluing because of the printing of money, they're paying for the rights and privileges of the private equity funds to get this low That's cost That's what money. happens when governments run fiscal deficits. They don't want to increase taxes to offset the spending. And so how does it get paid for? It gets paid for through inflation. But they're already gone often from their office. They're retired because the inflation comes later. 
Yeah, so that's one of the benefits of emerging markets too, is that they don't have the luxury of being able to print a huge amount of money and not cause a dramatic depreciation in their currency. So they're being checked by free market forces. They still do it. That's why you see sure. Argentina yeah, <laughs> having and Turkey. repetitive devaluation. It, you know, that doesn't prevent them. If the politics takes over and you get far left-wing populist governments, then that's the inevitable ending. Yeah. We had another mistake, which was number 27, which is, do you focus on pre-tax returns? And maybe we could just talk briefly about that. I know that there's two ways to look at this. The first way is say for the average investor, this problem, as you've mentioned to me, is kind of solved because now we have ETFs. But of course, there's still plenty of people doing active and trying to invest in active and that tax issue is still an issue. But maybe you could tell us just a little bit about what uh, you discuss in this. Yeah, well, the research shows, of course, that active managers aren't dumb. In fact, on average, they're smart and they generate gross alpha. The problem is that in their stock picking and you know market timing efforts. But the problem is that their costs far exceed their ability to generate alpha for a whole variety of reasons we discussed and I wrote about in my book, mm. The Incredible Shrinking Alpha. So just an example, this is a little bit older study that was done. I think it was Russ Wormers who did it. He found the average stock picking fund added value with their picks by like 80 basis points. But their expense ratio was about 80 basis points. Their trading cost was 70. Their cost of holding cash, which underperforms. And of course, we were in the era when cash was paying something, which it is once mm. again, right? Cost them money. And so they underperform by over 1% a year. So investors, even though they may have identified a manager with stock picking skills, were underperforming appropriate benchmarks anyway. But the sad part is that taxes for the average taxable investor is by far often the biggest expense that they face. In fact, there was a fellow named Ted Aronson, who was considered one of the great active value investors and managers for a long time, built up a tiny business to over 25 billion, I think. And he was asked, do you run any taxable accounts? He said, we refuse to accept them, even though we've been asked, because the hurdle for active management is so high that adding the burden of taxes makes it quoting him, virtually insurmountable. Unfortunately, the market caught up with him in the 20s and boom, his fund crashed and he shut it down because almost all the investors had fled. So even his ability to generate alpha had disappeared as the market had become more efficient. And just for people that don't understand ETFs, how is it that an ETF is able to reduce the tax burden on the individual investor. Mm -hmm. So this is a bit complex subject, but ETFs, what happens is when you're trading them, they're done through, if you go to sell them, right? Someone has to buy them, they take it and they now, you know, redeem those shares and sell it in the marketplace. So they've got to sell those shares. When they you go to buy one, if they don't, they can create those just by buying the stock. So that's called the creation and redemption process. When they sell the shares, they can 
allocate the individual's tax lots and they give the lowest basis stocks, lowest cost basis stocks to what are called approved traders who aren't taxable and they don't care. So that's how they wash, if you will, the capital gains treatment. So typically, at least for the indexing type low turnover funds, they hardly ever distribute much in the way of capital gains. But that's almost all of that money is passive or systematic indexing type money. There are some active funds, but most of them are passive. So here's a study that was done over covered a 10-year period. They looked at 71 funds that were alive in that period and the impact of taxes. And they found that 15 of the funds had outperformed on a pre-tax basis and five did so on an after-tax basis. There was one period they was studied, Morningstar looked at a, just a five-year period. Now, the longer the period, the bigger the impact of taxes becomes. In this period, the five years, the average fund gained 92% before taxes and 72% after. It lost a stunning 22% of the returns over that short five-year period. But you can see how high the costs can be. And Mm. the danger becomes things like you can have a bad year in a fund after, let's say, some good years. Now the funds go, and now investors panic and sell because they're chasing performance. And so what does the fund have to do, Andrew? They got to sell stock to raise the cash. Yep. So what do they do? They're realizing capital gains. You get, your fund is down 20% and you get handed a 10% return of your capital, which is now taxed. You can see your, you know, you see a lot of that in like last year. <laughs> mm. So going back to like, how does it, a person, you know, protect themselves? You had a- Get your own active funds in taxable accounts, period. Just yeah. don't do it unless, you know, you're using an ETF, then it might be, you know, okay. Although I would tell you, you're betting against the odds anyway, unless the expense ratio is comparable to a passive strategy. Now you've minimized the hurdle because if the costs are comparable, then you only have the issue of trading costs. And of course, I would avoid a fund that had a huge amount of assets because now it's gonna look like the market or if it's gonna concentrate, then it's gonna have big trading costs mm-hmm. because it's trading huge dollars in a small number of stocks. And everyone knows what they own. And when they see them coming in selling, the market's going to move against them. Mm. And when you talk before about different providers, whether that's Vanguard or Dimensional or Advantis, or I think you've talked about AQR in the past, is what they're doing, are they funds or are they ETFs or are they both? And how do we look at that? It depends on the fund family and what we're talking about. So a lot of what AQR does is long, short strategies, and people are only hold them in tax-advantaged accounts. They also run SMA accounts or separately managed accounts, and there they do some really interesting stuff, which I've written about, mm-hmm. where they lever up a strategy. So instead of being 100% long, they may be 150% or 200% long and 100% short, So they go long value and short growth, 
instead of being just long value. Now, you know with certainty, if you're long short two different factors, you're going to have losses, right? Somewhere. In the, so mm. they're constantly harvesting losses. And so that can really have a huge impact and be making the fund or your assets much more tax efficient. And it allows somebody, let's say, Andrew, you ran a and you sold it for 10 million bucks and you got this big capital gain if when you sell those shares you need losses to help offset that if you just own a long only fund you may never get it but if you use this strategy it's throwing off big losses and we help clients literally save millions of dollars a year through that strategy but now most of the fund families are converting like dimensional has done mm. they're in their mutual funds into ETFs, or at least making a version of that available. Right. Now, I'd rather own the mutual fund if it's in my IRA, because I don't pay any bid offer spreads. So you don't have the transactions costs. Right. And the bid offer spreads are being paid in the ETF. Yeah, every time you buy and sell, and, yep. you, and you know, it's not, here's the mistake that people make while we're on that. They think that that's the only cost. Well, when you're buying, your odds are great. You're going to be paying above the NAV. Mm. And when you're selling, it'll be below the NAV <laughs> because the high frequency traders will be on the other side and they'll pick you off. And that's the, just the way it goes. Well, now you hope the spreads are narrow, which depending upon the fund, if it's trading the large cap S&P stocks, the bid offer spreads will be narrow. But when you get into things like emerging markets or small value, the spreads can be wider and significant. So you don't want to own an ETF. You want to own a mutual fund. But you know, if you have the option now, you want to hold, if you've got it in an IRA, you have money in your IRA, you can allocate to equities then I would own the mutual fund, not the ETF. The ETF is for taxable accounts really only. Mm. Well, amazing how much stuff we went through. We talked about, you know, looking at proper benchmarks and understanding the manipulations that are going on there and how you can figure out yourself what has the right exposure to the factor that you want, like such a small value. And now we've talked about, you know, we, we previously talked about the different costs related to investing. We talked in prior ones about operating costs, like management fees and trading costs and the cost of cash. And now we've talked about the cost of taxes, which as you've said, can oftentimes end up being one of the biggest costs of all. So I just think we should stop right there because that's a lot to digest for the listeners. And Larry, I just want to thank you again for another great discussion to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth. And for listeners out there who want to keep up with all that Larry's doing, follow him on Twitter. You will not be disappointed or follow him on LinkedIn. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew saying. Larry's got one last word to put in. Go for it. Yeah, I just want to let you know, for your listeners, I wrote a piece last year about this time called Lies, Damn Lies, and Performance Benchmarks. So you could probably find that on Advisor Perspectives or just Google it, add my name to it. It shows an example how, for example, institutional investors lie about their 
their their benchmarks and create things so they look good to their constituents. Yes, I think I found it on Advisor Perspectives, and I'll yeah, include that in it. the show notes so that we can mm -hmm. go there and learn more. A font of wisdom. I'm going to wrap up by saying, I'll see you on the upside.